Welcome to This Artistic Life. On this podcast, we sit down with professional artists of all disciplines to talk about their journeys, what inspires them, and their unique perspectives from life off the beaten path. Brought to you in part by Artist Relief Tree, a relief fund for artists affected by cancellations due to COVID-19. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Today's guest is Iris Siff, well known for his work in the opera industry. He's a commentator on the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts, reviewer and feature article journalist for Opera News, as well as a director, lecturer, and presenter. Thank you very much for taking the time to be on the inaugural broadcast of This Artistic Life. Uh, it's wonderful to have you kicking around the show. Even though we're dealing with a time zone difference, I really appreciate your flexibility that way. That's, no, that's fantastic. Pleasure. So uh, just as we were literally just discussing, you have a very broad history in um in the opera world and uh, me talking through a recap would do your career kind of a, an injustice. So why don't you give us a, a recap of kind of a, a brief overview of how you've ended up where you are now and the many hats you've worn in the past? Well, it's kind of one big accident, I think. Um, in, in high school, I, I uh, befriended uh, a guy who uh, was a bit of I, what we now call a nerd, and uh, but I found him really interesting and funny. Um, and his name was Robert Misbin. Robert became a doctor. I became a diva. And I think my mother would have preferred the other D word. But, <laughs> but he was, his family was into opera. I'd been to Broadway shows. I grew up in Brooklyn. And uh, my parents took me to amazing, I mean, Inherit the Wind with Paul Muni and My Fair Lady and Peter Pan with Mary Martin. I saw this stuff, uh, but never the opera, ever. And Robert said we had to go. There was this new singer who was a big sensation who was making her debut at the Met called Joan Sutherland. So we had to go see her. So I went over to his uh, finished basement in Mill Basin, Brooklyn, and we uh, listened to this recording of Lucia with Joan that had just come out, and we followed with a libretto I had never heard the word libretto and we went uh to, and and got standing room tickets in the upstairs standing room in the old med for a dollar 25 and that night changed my life i was hooked immediately she was the noises she made were inhumanly amazing at that point she was pretty fresh from the zeffirelli production that made her a star at covent garden so mm -hmm. her theatrical persona was something you would never imagine from later performances, how uh, vivid the acting was. Richard Tucker was the Edgardo, and I remember the, the the death scene ringing, that tone ringing all the way up to the family circle. All my namorata. It just was so gorgeous. And uh, yeah, and that was it. And I left poor Robert in the dust. I mean, we kept going together, <laughs> but I was going three times a week to standing room. My budget would allow, you know, 375 for three tickets. Not bad. Yeah. And so I learned a lot of operas by seeing them. I didn't have a budget for recordings. There was no internet, no, no HD and no, no titles. I, so I, I, sometimes I had no idea what was going on, but the, like I went to Don Carlo over and over and over. I never really knew the libretto because I couldn't afford a, 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 a record, you know, a set of Don Carlo. So I would just go and uh, I saw everybody. I started in 61. So I saw, you know, uh, well, the usual lineup then. Uh, Nilsson, Corelli, Bergonzi, uh, Tibaldi, Gobi, 
uh, Tucker Reasonick, amazing. Um, I was at uh, Giaro's debut, Bumbry's debut, Montserrat's debut, Cheryl's debut, and most important to me um, in my later work, Renata Scotto's debut. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, and then of course, there was the Collis comeback in 65. Right. Slept on the street uh, for two nights, three days. And then we went to the airport so we could scream when she arrived and also make sure she arrived because no one believed she'd actually come. We thought she canceled. And then when we heard the first, I mean, when we knew she was there, when we heard the first Mario's from off stage in the Tosca, and uh, when she came on stage, everybody just lost it. Just because we never thought we would see her. So, you know, that was sort of my history. But I was, I was an art, I was a visual artist in, throughout school. And I was best boy artist in Madison High School when I graduated and I got into Cooper Union, which if you got into Cooper Union, you get a full scholarship and the competition is so stiff, you just have to take it. And by Mm -hmm. that time, I knew I didn't want to be a visual artist, but I got into Cooper Union. And since it was a full scholarship, I was no longer dependent on my parents for anything much. So I moved to Manhattan and got a part-time job and became super of my building and uh that way i could just go to the opera all the time and just squeaked through university really (laughs) and as soon as i got out but i i started studying voice even a little before i got out and started teaching voice uh by the time i was 23 and i left the visual arts thing and so then just trying to um Reader's Digest version, I was teaching <laughs> and I w- wanted to sing and a friend of mine was uh, the boyfriend of um, a famous off-Broadway composer minister at that time, Al Carmines, who uh, had all his shows were done at the Judson Poets Theater at Judson Church on Washington Square. So I went and sang for Al and he immediately put me in shows. So I was in all the Judson shows, all of Al's shows from 70 to 75. Uh, and sometimes they moved uh, to Off-Broadway and actually performed at Circle in the Square and these other theaters when the shows would move. And then I started to do a cabaret show in which I did uh, more comedy and treatments of singing. And Mm -hmm. I I did jazz singing, I did uh, Luciano on a talk show, you know, I did Scotto on a talk show, you know, I did, it was all parody stuff. And so I would sing soprano, I'd sing tenor, and uh, one day, one of my fans gave me an invitation to uh, something he was doing, a soiree. And I went, and I could tell from the invitation, this was going to be two guys in drag doing divas. <laughs> right. so I was fascinated. <laughs> so I went, and it was I levitated during the entire thing. And then after the show, he said, could you, you know, do you, I know you have falsetto. Do you want to sing with me? Because my cousin, the other diva, is going back to the Dominican Republic where he's in med school. So would you like to, you know, form an opera company? So we formed La Gran Chena. And that's how that got started. He named it. I brought in the music director, Richard Burke, who was the director for my cabaret show. Um, and uh, we held auditions and we, we rented the Orpheum Theater and we did late night shows at 11 o'clock every Friday. We were supposed to do four shows in November and it just kept going. We did 12 of those. People would come down from the Met City Opera, you know, with a paper bag over their heads to see this cult thing. <laughs> and then it just caught on. And, you know, and Jimmy 
started to come and Lentine and and Joan and Aprile, Anamafo, you know, Ramey and Cheryl. And, and they were, that was my door into the legitimate opera world was by putting on a dress and singing soprano. That's fantastic. And, I love that. <laughs> then we got um, management and, uh, and some of the stuff, I really got most of our bookings, to be honest. And, and, and when we were with Cammie, we got very little. But I, once we would perform somewhere, we would get asked back always and it would sometimes catch on like we performed in london we co-produced with the bloomsbury theater in london and then this guy bill bird at coots came to see us and then we got edinburgh because he was connected to that festival and the bucks mm. opera house and the manchester festival and the queen's college in belfast and the wexford festival so one thing would lead to another thing it was I never I can't imagine there were many people doing anything remotely like this at the time. Well, that was an advantage and a disadvantage. Um, it was, I mean, we never made money. Like, you know, if I had the Trocadero Ballet, I'd, I'd be a millionaire. But, right, um, right. but it was a disadvantage because opera was still foreign to a lot of people. Whereas with, with the Trocs, dance has always been very popular in America. And mm -hmm. if you have ballet, they assume that all the men in the company are gay, so there's no homophobia attached to that. But with us, it was people would, who we never got booked in the states. We did seasons in New York, which which were self-produced, mm -hmm. and then we did San Francisco once, got panned in San Francisco. That was kind of heartbreaking and bizarre. We did yeah. Chicago a few times, Houston, but mostly no bookings in the states because people would say. Oh, it'll out me if I book you. It will out, you know. It, it yeah. was a really interesting, and it was, of course, 81 is when we started. 81 is when AIDS started. Right. So people were really mm, pushing us away. So we went to Europe, worked a lot in Germany, a lot in Holland and the UK and Australia and South America. Wow. That's quite a tour for something that just kind of happened by accident. I mean, that's... <laughs> well, I figured out some ways to bring in, uh, to make it accessible. Um, we, we invented Sylvia Bills, who was a Beverly Sills uh, hostess, so that we had a running narration. So people who didn't really know opera got the story before they saw the scene or the aria and laced with jokes. So for the, I mean, before the AIDS crisis really killed a lot of our audience, we could do the smallest, subtlest, play on the libretto in something uh, like in the Tosca where 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 uh, where Tosca says quanto but but in our production Vera is talking about the cost of the wine in España that he's giving her you know because <laughs> she looks at the bottom of the bottle to see how much it costs you know and people would just scream so there was that layer for the the people who really knew their shit and yeah. then there was the the more broad layer for people who weren't opera people to try to make yeah. it accessible so that worked and then we had to translate sylvia for foreign countries and do narration in spanish narration in german narration a little bit in dutch and portuguese so that you know we tried to make it catch on and, and make it work and we just loved doing it it was hard work it didn't pay very well because we'd have to do five or six shows a week singing what i sang valkyrie Tosca Act Two, Ride of the Valkyries, Mad Scene from Lucia, and an encore. And I'd have to do it five or six times in a row 
you know. Man. And in the, I mean, like the Teatro des Vestens in Berlin, or the or the the Opera House in Brazil, or the Opera House in Sao Paulo, big houses, not my, you know, right? So yeah, very wearing on what was left of my voice. Um, I mean, it may have been comedic based and and very much in that kind of modern buffa kind of thing, but that's still that's still challenging rap, no matter what you're doing it with it. Well, in falsetto, it was pretty challenging. Um, and for, for the baritones and tenors as well, and the mezzos and the company, but um, it had to be, you know, I was talking to Roberta Alexander about it here. She lives in in Amsterdam. She would make a great interview, by the way. And she, we were talking about being black and how you had to be better if you were black. And I said, we had to be better. And I, I once... Um, I sort of talked about that with Leontine once, that we had to be better musically. We had to show that it wasn't trashing an art form, but it was um, out of adoration, that it was mm -hmm. as much tribute as a spoof. So that was tricky. We had to really, and that's really what made us, I think, with, and that led to, you know, the fact that, that um, Jim Levine would come, and then when he went to Tanglewood, wanted someone to stage direct, asked me to stage direct, because he, uh, that's why when the Met was looking for, uh, they were auditioning, I didn't know it was an audition, but they were having people come in to co-host broadcasts with Marka Juntwait. That's why I got asked, really, because of the musical credibility of Granchena, uh, yeah. kind of balanced the putting on a dress and doing pratfalls in Lucia, kind of. I mean, just the, the names of the people that you, you rattled off that that became fans of your productions. I mean, the huge names in opera at the time just goes to show that it definitely was a, a real tribute that they took to heart. And it, 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 was, was, a, it was a serious thing while being a fun thing. It, it was fun. Leontine called it a fun busman's holiday in a, in, a, in a letter she wrote for me. It was so sweet, so kind. They were all so kind. I mean, that was the thing. I couldn't believe even Franco. I mean, I couldn't who would turn up in the audience. It was always better if I didn't know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and usually I didn't know. They would come back afterwards. The person, though, I'll tell you, the person who made me most nervous is someone you may never have heard of. Um, and that was Charles Ludlam, who had the ridiculous theatrical company in New York City and was the greatest Camille of, of his generation. And Charles, and, I mean, Charles was uh, respected got Ford Foundation grants, Rockefeller grants, huge, you know, uh, New York State Council. That that company was brilliant. Uh, and he died of AIDS in 1987. But he was, I did, Traviata was the first full scene I did, was the last act. And I mm -hmm. did it because of Charles's Camille really inspired me. And I was more nervous when he came to see the show and I was doing Traviata than I was when you know, Joan came or, or, or Renata. It was really, it was, he was my idol. If you ever, can, his stuff wasn't so documented with video because of, of when he was uh, performing and, and, uh, and when he died, but there are some videos and he did a very, very famous, well, Mystery of Irma Vep is his most famous show uh, and still done by repertory companies all the time, yeah. but he did something called Galas which was a, a, a Collis biopic kind of thing. And he was, of course, Maria. And it was, it's brilliant. And I think there's a video of that. I will definitely have to hunt that down. It's amazing. 
So that no, you said you started that in in eighty one, and that wrapped up when you, did you say? Well, the last full company performance was at Liceo in two thousand two, okay. uh, and my last solo show because then the first seven more years I did um, the annual farewell recital, and that wrapped up in two thousand nine at at the Symphony Space. Gotcha. That's a long run. I mean, that rocking something out straight with a company for for twenty one years. Is no small feat. Um, it was. It was. Um, yeah. No. No. It was a lot of work, and and by the time I got to the recitals only, when it was only the recitals, I loved that because I could sing anything I wanted and in any key. So yes, um, that was that was marvelous because I could sing uh, chanson and, and German lead and Spanish songs, even Chinese uh, song, and you know, and uh, I loved doing those. But there was a point at which. I was in um, Tanglewood. I was directing Giovanni for Jim, and uh, and Hans, my husband, had made a video of the three nights that I did in Symphony Space. He made an edit of the best uh, versions of everything from the three nights to make one one show that I could stand to look at. And uh, I watched the video, and it was really interesting because I had this chat once with Scotto, and she said. You know, I said, why are you, why do you, why are you stopping? Why don't you do recitals? You can still do recitals. Said, you know, she said, you will know. And it was so true. Was, I looked at the DVD. All the shows were sold out. The audience was screaming and loving it. And I was not happy. And I could feel what I was going through to get the crank, the falsetto up to where it was still able to go. And I thought, Okay, this is really painful. I I really live to perform, but I'm stopping. Yeah, and you just know, you just know. Yeah. And so that pushed you into you. I mean, you were teaching this whole time, right? Um, and then, but you you kind of you transitioned then more into the directing aspect of things. Um, yes, but that how was, was that transition accident. for you. Well, that was an accident. Um, it's all. It's, it's all Really, it's a big coincidence. I'm telling you the whole thing. Um, it, I went to see Bob Lombardo. He was he's Renata's manager. Mm -hmm. see, because Cami really didn't do well for Granchena. I will leave it at that. Uh, and um, so I went to him and I said, it was around 1999. And I said, I think I'm going to have to stop with no bookings. And I, I have no work for anybody. And, uh, and I don't know why. Um, can you could you take us on because you have all these connections you love what we do Renata loves what we do can you do something and he said uh I've never handled a company I only handle soloists so no but I'd really like you to direct and I said uh-huh okay thank you and left <laughs> and then I got a contract in the mail from Lombardo <laughs> to sign with them as a director so I thought, okay. And then I was in Israel in one of Joan Dorneman's programs in Tel Aviv, teaching mm -hmm. and coaching. And and and, uh, and I get a call from Bob saying, I have a gig for you. Would you be interested to do your first directing gig? And I said, oh, I don't know. what's the opera? And he said, Tosca. And I said, oh, I know Tosca pretty well. Yeah, I've sung the second act 250 times. So I think, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I could try that, but I'm still really nervous about it. Oh, I mean, do I know anybody who's in the cast? And he said, I think you know the Tosca. And I said, yeah, who is it? He said, Aprile Milo. So I thought, oh, 
Um, it's, but I adored her. For me, she was the one who still did what they used to do. And so I, I did it. But I, I and I did, I did a lot of productions, uh, but I stopped doing it when I got the Met thing. It was really difficult to leave town. And it was really difficult to devote what I think the time is that you should devote to directing a show and, and really researching it and trying things and having 10 fallback plans for everything, depending on who your performers are. And there was the issue of, I felt like a bit of an anachronism. Um, I didn't want to be forced to do concept things that I didn't want to do. And I didn't want to be at the other end of the spectrum of being just jobbed in to do uh, somebody else's production or some rented thing from Tri-Cities that, you know, a backdrop with wrinkles. So, you know, I have my own wrinkles. I don't need that. So I, um, I decided that uh, I would ultimately, I would stop directing. And Bob kept calling, and I still feel guilty about it, with offers. But it was also really hard. I, I did a few productions when I was st started at the Met on the air, and it was impossible to juggle the two things. And with the Met, I could just stay home and teach. And I didn't want to give that up to be traveling from hotel to hotel to hotel. And even though doing productions is so exciting. And, and, and then I got totally spoiled at Tanglewood, the, the ones I did with Levine. You know, they, you have your own production. They didn't have a huge budget, but I had a beach house built for Cozy. You know, you, they had funds. Yeah. It was him conducting. And it was young artists, you know, from at that level from the Met and, and so forth in Juilliard. So I got kind of spoiled. So, so I stopped the directing and now I just um, coach and work in a few programs in the conservatory in the Netherlands and, uh, and do the, the Met broadcasts and, uh, and write a bit for Opera News. And uh, I, I have two private lecture groups that I lecture on opera also, uh, 20 times a year, but during the pandemic, they wanted to continue on Zoom because they're starved for stuff. Yeah. So I've just done my 34th lecture for them since the pandemic. Wow. <laughs> a lot of a lot of writing, a lot of playlists that you have to make. Right, right. I uh, it's funny. I do some I do some consulting work with uh, smaller companies, regional companies, as well as some young artists programs, and work with a lot of specifically young artists and emerging artists. And we did a lot of stuff via Zoom. Yeah. And uh, it was awkward, but it did feel like there was at least still momentum going and everything wasn't truly that's just right. stopped. No, that's it's kept me going. I, I would, I don't know what I would be doing with with all the free time. We, we are gonna start November 10th, I think, with meetings and, and recordings because we're having a broadcast season, a full broadcast season. 27 broadcasts even though there's no met opera this year we use uh we're using archival broadcasts but but new chat with uh with me i can be here i can be in new york uh i will be and mary joe is in stamford connecticut and uh the engineers are geniuses we we did it before when the pandemic first happened and uh they make it sound like we're chatting uh, we are chatting i mean we do we do do it at the same time Right. 
Not like a Decca recording with the Renee <laughs> one city and Thomas Hampson, another one two years later. It's actually, <laughs> it, it, it's actually uh, we we're we're really uh, we very simpatico in communication uh, on Zoom while we have professional mics in front of us, so we're communicating visually, but we're being recorded professionally. Yeah, yeah. So what was that? Uh, I mean, you went from standing in line and standing in the Met standing room in the sixties to being hired by this company that, uh, that basically introduced you to everything. What was that transition like being now being a part of the, like literally part of the Met family, uh, in a, in a, an employee's type of way. I, I, to be honest, it's very twofold. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really, an outsider in the sense that I'm a contract player. Um, I'm not an employee, so I'm not, I, I have a contract for each broadcast season. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that sense, I, I have a very small family that I'm uh, uh, attached to there. Ellen Keel, who's a senior editor and producer, and Mary Jo, formerly, it was Margaret. Margaret and I were like that i still i miss her desperately she she's one she was one of my dearest friends uh but you know mary joe and i have have developed our version of of what we do um and uh there are a couple of other people one of them just got furloughed uh who are in a very small family that that i'm i'm with uh there and i adore really the Met family, also Yolanda, who deals with with um, uh, payments and contracts. I mean, there are people who I I won't mention people who got furloughed. Uh, <laughs> it's a very unfortunate situation. But you know, I'm in Holland, where the government funds the arts very generously. That is not the case in the states, and so Peter really has no choice. There is no money to mm. to pay people all the time when there is no opera. But anyway, that's another issue. Um, I, so I feel very outside in that sense. I go in only a few times a week, uh, and see only the sixth floor and the same people. Uh, I, but I'm, then I'm at all the dress rehearsals and then I see singers that I know and this, you know, and then I feel like a big part of sort of a bigger family and I see Peter and, you know, I, and I like that very, very much. I see Anik, uh, but I'm not in the cafeteria five days a week, you know, right. you know, so I'm not, I'm very outside it. And I got to say, Daniel, I really like that. Uh, I like feeling independent from things in a way, and I feel independent from it. I'm thrilled beyond description to have it. I'm grateful at this time that they're going to have broadcasts. Mm -hmm. And I love some of what I see there, and I don't love everything I see there. They never make me say I do if I don't. Um, so I really like the atmosphere in my little department. But the big opera house, I find more intimidating being an insider than I did when I was an outsider. Because when you're an outsider, you just go and you criticize everything. Right. And you know, when you're 19, you know everything anyway. So, you know, I started at 15 and, you know, and then it's like I had nothing but opinions. And of course, no experience having to put this stuff on myself. So I had no idea what went into it. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot also 
doing features for Opera News and going down into uh, the archives, um, what we call Tuggleheim because of Robert Tuggle, the archivist downstairs into the basement and researching files and discovering contracts and finding out so much about what goes into doing this and what people had to sign off to do when it was really the kind of company it was in the 50s and early 60s where people would have to, uh, they they had to be responsible for like 22 roles because it wasn't a, a stagione thing and you didn't have a production that had one cast that you know was done a bunch in the fall and then it revived in the spring. You had six Toscas in one season singing Tosca. And, yeah. and people just had, Mr. Bing would just tell them what they were doing later in the year and they had to be available to do it. So it was, it was a different time, but, but I do feel intimidated by the house now. I mean, there are 1,700 employees. Uh, it's enormous. It's, there's so much about it I'm aware of that I don't know. And I'm not chummy. I'm not a networker. It's abhorrent to me. I'm not on any social media. So I'm not chummy with singers. I don't go hang out and schmooze in the cafeteria. I keep a, a bit of distance from it. And I really like being part of it. And I like being distant from it at the same time. So it's a, it's a weird relationship coming out of being a kid, uh, going to the opera and thinking I knew everything and being there and realizing I don't know anything. <laughs> I think that distance probably also helps at least with your present position there, because then you can, you can comment. And, and I wouldn't say critique, but you can comment from a, a perspective that is not totally wrapped into their day-to-day -day culture but yeah exactly. a little bit you, you know what's going on but you're not really truly a part of that day-to-day -day. so it allows you to comment from a slightly different perspective i think so and also the objectivity is really necessary and um i'm not really there you know we always talk about for me it's very different from a sportscast we always talk about how sportscasters have an announcer and a commentator uh, on sportscasts and this should be like that but it can't really be because I can't say, wow, that was a lousy B flat, you know, the way a commentator on a sports thing could say, oh, I really missed that one. So I'm really allowed to say something if I think some, someone is extraordinary in terms of the style or the singing, but I don't have to. And I don't say anything negative about mm -hmm. performances. And, you know, I like that in a way because people really don't know what goes into this. And it's really easy to say, oh, no, that cracked. But really, did you get up this morning and discover that you had postnasal drip and couldn't really hit that note the way you could the other six days this week? You know, yeah. people don't know. So I'm very happy not to be dishing it. And I know that there are there is such a thing as Opera L and all of those, those groups that can be very dishy uh about the Met and the Met broadcasts but they don't really understand what goes into something and how objective it has to be for an audience of nine million people who don't want to hear you bitch about some soprano you don't like right well it's also easy to rip on the top of the pyramid too you know it, it's easy to just look up see the beacon see the the person the, the the group setting the standards um, in the country and, and lay into them, um, because it's an easy target, but it is. <clears throat> you know, I always tell, I tell young singers all the time, like you have to get out and see performances that aren't scholastic performances. They aren't in academia. It's not something you did in your conservatory, like see real performances. Yeah. And 
because I see people all the time comment on social media about shows they never saw, that they had a friend of a friend who was in the performance, but, you know, and so immediately that, that carries weight and opinion, um, allegedly. Oh, yeah. They no, didn't see it themselves. And I'm like, no, go see it. Now everything also is, I mean, yeah, you know, I said this last night to, to my lecture group, and I, until I say it, I don't even realize it, uh, that I learned so many operas by going to see the operas. Uh, and it was simply because of being sort of disadvantaged financially, but very advantaged to be in New York. Um, right. So I, I didn't have a budget the way some kids had for a lot of recordings or, you know, whatever. But the, but the thing is, it, it's very easy to, to tear apart. And that, that was kind of my job, but in an affectionate way with Grand Chena. I mean, I was up there on stage in, uh, in 2009 in symphony space and I was dishing the Met and, 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 and some of uh, Peter was sort of newish then. And I was talking uh, as Madame Vera about the production of butterfly with a puppet, which I actually love, but at that time, of course, had to make fun of it. Right. And, um, you know, how he was going to hire Kristen Chenoweth to sing Norma because he wanted Broadway performance, you know, that kind of thing, which I could do as her. Yes. That was my job then to supply the, the kind of um oh god i don't know what uh, the commentary on the art form as the the court jester in a way mm -hmm. um and i could get away with anything i said i could get away with saying it because it wasn't me saying it it was madame fira saying it but as me now uh, uh, uh no i won't even answer an email as tempting as it might be from someone who's who's ripping on, on somebody I don't like because I will not put in print something like that because this world is not to be trusted for communication in that way. So many things are taken out of context. Uh, you know, we, it, the weird thing that I find about social media, particularly in the arts, when, when culture is involved, like national culture or a people group's culture is involved, we assume, what I see regularly day to day, is that Americans or whomever, uh, a people group will see a different people group do something specific and then rip on it because they have n no idea where it comes from yeah. um, or what it means. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak from the American perspective. I see very often Americans ripping on stuff that's happening in the rest of the world uh, because it doesn't line up with their day-to-day -day understanding um, yeah. or a perspective that they just have no idea where that comes from. Um, and, and it's really easy to pull a one-liner out of something, throw it into a meme, toss it onto Twitter or Instagram, and then it just circulate in this echo chamber of negativity. And so I completely understand that perspective of, you know, it doesn't, that stuff doesn't need to be in print as a professional. And uh, you could just step back and let the other people who are bitter deal with things their way. <laughs> yeah, there's a facility to that that is really um, childish and and not sophisticated it doesn't understand the context of anything and of course we have at the top of our country um an example of of, of such consummate ignorance uh that it's kind of suckered a lot of people into feeling that that's okay you know that yeah. that, that, that that swipes and and nasty nicknames and and memes that are ugly are, are okay and they're not yeah 
uh, one of the reasons I looked forward to this conversation too was that because you've spanned so many years in the opera industry, you had a chance to observe both as a as a fan, but then as as somebody who's active involved with that opera world that a lot of people consider kind of that second golden age of opera in that middle to late 20th century. Um, I feel like the opera industry now is really disconnected from where that was in the 60s to the 80s. What are the differences as somebody who was, I mean, I obviously can't speak to it personally because I wasn't there for, I didn't wander into the into the opera world until the late 90s. Um, and so I, I missed all that other stuff. And I didn't see some of these people live and I didn't see these performances and I, I didn't get a chance to hear these voices in person nor see how the industry worked. What are some of the bigger differences that you see between how we do it now versus then? And we all know social media is the thing. Um, that's a big part of it. But besides that, um, what are some of those the differences that between then and now? Well, it's hard to divorce the computer from all of it. I'll try because yeah. <laughs> for me, it's like, you know, if, if, if there are two jobs I wouldn't want in the world, uh, president of the United States and general manager of the Met. Um, <laughs> it, to, to come in, let's say when, when Peter came in and tried to make friends with technology uh, and entice a younger audience through uh, serious radio, streaming, uh, HD transmissions, uh, edgier productions, nothing is going to bring them in in the cultural climate that isn't cultural climate i mean that's mm. so, so right away you have that difference and i'll talk about how it's different in the art form but but i think daniel it's difficult to detach one from the other because mm. you take all these jabs at at trying to attract them um oh it's going to be it's going to be edgier productions. It's going to be Nico Muley operas. Let's try putting it in the movie theaters. Well, everyone who goes to HD transmissions has it's a sea of blue hair. You know, it's 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 not young people. Um, yeah. Streaming, not young people. Serious radio. All the subscribers I know are 60, 70, 80 years old uh, who listen to to Met Opera on Serious Radio. So it's difficult uh, to it. Yeah. So art, I think, is always a reflection of the times in which it exists. This is a very technological era. Um, I do think that one of the problems has been that there aren't new works. And, and uh, I don't know what you do about that. Uh, Peter is, is having three next season, which is great, uh, plus Akhenaten and Porgy. Um, but uh, we'll see how that fares with the audience. If you do an edgy production, uh, the older people don't like it. If it's just recycling of a 1950s production over and over and over and over, then people say you're not creative and it's a museum and it's boring. So it's a tough time. With what I hear and feel, I mean, the main difference is, sure, it's very obvious to you, is it is now st the stage director rules now. The stage director rules. There was a time the singer ruled or the singer and the conductor ruled. Um, when I first started going, it was that time. And if yeah. you had a good stage director like young Zeffirelli, you could have both. You could have that Falstaff. You could have Joan's interpretation of Lucia or, or Carlos and Gobi's uh, in Tosca, which they brought from Zeffirelli and other houses. Um, so you had singers bringing incredible interpretations that tied to the score and the markings in the score 
and the language um, not to the concept of the director, uh, not to what can I do with this piece to make it interesting. The piece is interesting. Um, Felice Romani was a genius poet, so Sonambula is not a boring opera. And if you think Sonambula is a boring opera, don't sing it and don't <laughs> make it into a dress rehearsal of Sonambula and don't wear clogs and do a dance at the end. If you think it's a boring opera, just do something else. Yeah. You know, so the point of view of respect for the piece, I think, is is a little bit what's missing. Now, I'm not saying that was a golden age because we had disorganized productions. We had people meeting for the first time on stage. We had, you know, and I, <laughs> the fact that I could see six Toscas in a season and they were all big names that will make you drool also came with a disorganization in the pre there wasn't one style being performed by everyone so there wasn't a cohesiveness always but then again the fact that the singers and the conductor had to make your exciting evening happen was a huge factor in making exciting evenings happen i mean when scotto first came out and sang butterfly's entrance this big that juicy middle voice and then floated the D flat and diminuendoed it, we all levitated. I mean, because that was what you always wanted to hear in Butterfly's entrance. Mm -hmm. You always wanted to hear someone whose Italian sounded somehow like Japanese, which she could somehow achieve. Uh, you wanted to see an interpretation of such intensity that you had to go, I, I used to go have a milkshake across the street to the coffee shop after act two so I could get through act three the way she would just make you just sweat and cry. Uh, you know, you're on total liquid diet. You take it in and then it would all come out. <laughs> and, and, and Collis, I literally gasped under, after some of the line readings of, of Collis in, in, in Tosca. La corona, lo stemma. I remember myself going, <gasps> and somebody next to me saying, shh. You know, there were moments of such intensity. Riesenick and London in, in Dutchman. And Leone's high B's in the Met, what they sounded like, or Nielsen's in Turandot, high B's and C's, and she and Franco having a, the kind of war that you couldn't have now because no stage director would put up with that. But the kind of vocal war that Corelli and Nielsen had was thrilling beyond description. So the aesthetic shifted, I think, to make productions better and make works relevant to our time because they're now old works. And that, I think, reached a peak at a certain point where it was interesting. And then I remember Martina Arroyo telling me something that some production she was in, I think in Hamburg of Macbeth, maybe, where she thought, OK, I'm not putting up with this anymore, where where concept directions, what, what Madame Vera calls Kindermit concept directors, uh, where, where it just went over that line for singers. And now it's so far over that line that big names who have the power to not do this stuff do it because it's what you do. I mean, if Debbie could be fired from Covent Garden for be being the wrong weight to fit in the little black dress, then you know that the singers aren't in charge anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's the biggest shift, I think. Conductors and singers, I think, were the, the source of the production quality. And it's great if you also got wonderful sets, costumes, and a good director. And now it's the production and 
the concept. And sometimes I think it really clicks and it can be fabulous, like the Agrippina at the Met uh, last season. Um, David did a brilliant, I think, brilliant job and mind what Joyce is great at and everyone else in the cast. Uh, there'll always be things you like and don't like in a production, but something like that for me is so cohesive, it excuses anything I, that I would have maybe done differently or wanted to see differently. That's where the stress is now. But when that's not enough to make up for singing that's not idiomatic, um, that doesn't come from, it doesn't come from a line of tradition, you feel that detachment from the tradition. Mm-hmm. And that I feel is the big deficiency now for me, for my taste. Um, a lot of people don't hear this. A lot of the people I lecture do, and some don't at all hear. But when they hear it, when I play them the real thing, when they hear Olivero sing Adriana, they understand why Chilea thought she was the best Adriana. They go, oh my God, we don't hear singing like that anymore. Oh, you spoil us by playing us this stuff. You know, they get it. If you put that in front of an audience, they're going to get it. If you don't put it in front of an audience, they'll still like something they see and, and hear a pretty voice and, you know, but to me that magic, that what a friend of mine calls the perfume, uh, is missing to, to mm-hmm. a degree. And that's a shift. I mean, I would leave, knowing a lot less than I do now about a libretto or whatever, I would leave a performance at the, at the Old Met just six inches off the ground, you know, just those Schwarzkopf's marshalling. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can, I can remember the really specific performances where uh, I left the the Met or, or any other opera opera house and said, this is why I go to the opera, you know, and I can, I can count them on my two hands, you know, and I feel like, I feel like if it's not given to the audience on a regular basis, like you, you said that you're, the people that you lecture to will say that they feel spoiled when you, you know, almost almost ruined when you when you play these performances because if it's not given on a regular basis, people don't know what they're missing. No, it's true that that you go and you have a nice evening. Yeah, um, I've never really had a catharsis over nice, so um, I know I ask too much because I want that experience. We all want that experience, and that's why also some opera pe- people and opera queens get very hypercritical because they had an experience that they expect to be repeated for them while they sit there in their chair and they take money for the ticket. That yeah. can't always happen, obviously. Yeah. But I do miss, I mean, the, the, something like Riesenich in London in, in Dutchman or Scotto in Butterfly or Callas in Tosca, Schwarzkopf's Marshall. And you know, I miss that feeling where you, you think you don't even know that time passed. You're not yeah. looking at your at your watch or, or, you know, or the train schedule back yeah. to great neck or whatever it is, but you, it, it's really a, so that to me is the big shift. It's production oriented now. And there's less of the, of the perfume really for, for me. Um, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with the art form, Daniel. I, I don't see a big future for it. I hope I'm wrong. And I think there'll be a lot more small companies, and a fewer big companies, but we'll yeah. see. I'm I'm in agreement with you on that one. I really think that's that's accurate. Um, you know, when you listen for yourself, um, and it's not it's not work related. It's not something you're going to comment on. What when you listen truly for your own enjoyment, 
what do you listen for? What really grabs you in a performance or uh, in a specific singer? Um, what do you get wrapped up in? For me, it's it's um, the 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 commitment and the exploration of the vocal possibilities. Um, I feel if I know a work, it's also how what they do with the markings, what they do with what's on the page. That's why I find Collis to be a, a genius. It's never there's never an effect for an effect. It's it's it, it's remarkable. I went to all of her master classes because I auditioned for them, and I didn't get in, but I got an invitation to audit. So I guess I I wasn't a total disgrace. I think I was a total disgrace, but I got an invitation to audit. So I went to all of them, and uh, and what she taught was simply to follow what's on the page. When I hear a performance where I feel it's electrified by the score and the text. I get very excited, even if the singer is somewhat flawed. If the singer understands technique, I get very thrilled because I, I had a I had a really great teacher called Randy Michelson, who was a, a bel canto and baroque expert. He passed away about two years ago. Um, he has three lectures on YouTube that are mind-blowingly brilliant, and he um, he he did all the ornaments for Caballé's rarities albums. He went to Australia on the big tour with Joan and Richard in 1965, where they brought Pavarotti um, with them for the first time. Uh, and Randy was a genius, and he taught me Garcia vocal technique. Uh, and when I hear someone who has an awareness of what a friggin' vowel is and how to turn the voice and how to trill, I get excited because there is also not a plethora of that technical awareness now. When, when you hear people who can figure out their shit, too, I get very excited. Camarena, someone who really, you yeah. say, okay, this guy really knows his stuff. Uh, Krasimir Stoyanova, Ermanella Yaho, Anna Maria Martinez, uh, particular singers who I think are underused uh, in, in where I work, um, who are just beyond a lot of what I do here. Um, I get very excited. If I hear a piano like Ermanella's, uh, if I hear uh, Martinez did uh, Liu here, you know, something like a, she got Butterfly at the Met as a replacement um, when, when, when Hei Kyung was sick with, with uh, very bad bronchitis, and, and she was brilliant. Uh, then I get very excited about that kind of thing. And Camarena excites me tremendously. He can talk about technique and you know uh, this guy knows what he's doing and yeah. always has. I heard him in in, in Mexico City, a friend of mine, uh, Lucy Arner, conducted uh, Enfuring down there and there's this young guy singing Belmonte who you could tell, okay, this guy knows how to sing. Yeah. That excites me a lot because there's not a whole lot of tech. You see a lot of over-darkened middle register uh, kind of sounds that lead to very spread high notes. I hear a lot of that and I don't get very excited by that. Yeah. So I will go back sometimes. I was listening to Zinka's 1946 Joconda today. Um, and uh, even with all her Slavic mannerisms in the Italian, she knew how to sing. And it's just yeah. so nice to listen to that. And she knew when she went into chest, just the amount she had to cover the chest so she could still be exciting with chest, but not rip her throat out. She knew how to flow to piano. So, you know, it was I'll listen to that. Thank God for YouTube. And I get very excited. Yeah. YouTube is a fantastic asset when it comes to older recordings. 
Uh, yes, tell that to the young singers. Yeah, because we're, we're never going to dig through archives the way we once did. I mean, I remember in, in grad school, the amount of time that I spent in a library. And then when I did my postgraduate degree, even in that four-year change, the amount of time that I spent doing online research versus in-house research oh. was totally different. Well, it, I mean, I had to buy a record to hear a record, you know, and, and, yeah. and all these young singers have everything at their disposal uh, and they need to know to go back. They need to know to go back in time and start from people who worked with the conductors who worked with the composers. You can yeah. even hear the composers conduct. You can, there, there are two cavalerias, at least two, with Mascagni conducting. And you can hear Lina Bruno Raza, who was his favorite, Santuzza, in both of them, one live and one in his studio. Well, if you're going to do Santuzza, or any Verismo opera, listen to this. Yeah. You know, these people, that's what's missing also, is just the line back. And I was very lucky. I, I worked with um, Renata in her vocal academy for two summer sessions. And you get to, to work with somebody who worked with Serafin, who worked with these people, you know, who knew the who knew pe people who worked with people who knew Puccini and Verdi, you know. Yeah. And so the information, the line of information is broken and the the focus of the art form is shifted and there's nothing much you can do about that it, it is you know 2020 and it's not going to be 1920. right so. yeah you know that thing about the composers though is that's a that's another one of those things that i always tell young singers and when i was actively singing i loved working with composers uh not only does it give you a, a ridiculous amount of opportunity especially if the composer is particularly good um, because if you get that relationship, then they'll be like, oh, we're going to do this gig over here. I want you to sing this. But it also means that you have the actual composer's point of view for the piece. Um, like I know f my girlfriend was just coaching with somebody who coached one of the more recent modern pieces that people know, and I won't get into names and stuff, but um, that coach who had worked very closely with the composer uh, you know, made a comment about he cares less about the note here and more about the counting. Mm -hmm. Unless you had talked to the composer themselves, how would you ever know that? And so, yeah. you know, that kind of knowledge, like you said, there's a lineage to that knowledge uh, that is a direct representation of how it was composed, how it was meant to be performed. Um, and I think that's fascinating. No, I, you know, the, I think I can't remember the exact statistic, but... Um... Olivero sang so many new works that I think it was 33 or 34 of the composers she sang were still living when she started to study and sing. And, and you know, we don't have that anymore. We're not going to have that anymore. But yeah. we can look for a line back. And there are so few people like Renata who are still alive who can teach that um, or at least open your eyes to it. But we do have the recordings. Yeah. And the recordings tell a lot, and they they really do. And and I just find that the singers, young singers I work with, I'll be sending them links all the time because they will not look pa back past you know nineteen ninety five you know for for anything. Yeah, it's totally true. So speaking of that, and uh, I know you've got more stuff to do tonight, so we'll wrap this up with this last question. Um, in that, in that mindset, do you have any specific advice for the next generation of 
not just opera singers, but anybody involved in the industry that's coming up through the ranks right now? Not, not specific advice, but I would say uh, balance, balance your marketing, which is now a necessity, with quality. Really try to balance the presentation of what your product is. Um, if you use the word brand, which is so trendy now, if you use the word brand, you have to understand that your brand encompasses a classical art form that demands a certain quality. Uh, and so I, I really feel that right now, that's a whole other topic, but we try to get into figuring out our brand and uh, where we're going to fit in the scheme of things, because we're quite, you know, if I were a young artist, unfortunately, I'm not. It's desperate to try mm -hmm. to find how you can fit in. If you have incredible quality and then you make that quality widely accessible through your marketing, someone's going to notice. But try not to second guess oh, why someone didn't like you or why someone else won this thing or, you know, don't focus on other people at all if you can help it. Yeah. And really focus on your own quality because that, that other routine is not productive at all. I completely agree with all that sentiment. I absolutely do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time um, to kick off this new podcast uh, I really appreciate it and we'll have to revisit and when you're when you're back in New York and things are relatively normalized uh, we'll have to uh, <laughs> we'll have to grab a <laughs> grab a drink and uh, and chat some more oh, for yeah. sure oh, that would be fun I'm sure we'll have nothing to talk about oh nothing at all no absolutely <laughs> yeah I want to I want to hear more about If you're interested in contributing to Artist Relief Tree to help artists struggling with COVID-19 shutdowns, please visit artistrelieftree.com. This has been an episode of This Artistic Life. Find us on your favorite podcast apps and subscribe. Follow This Artistic Life on Instagram at This Artistic Life and on Twitter at Artistic Vita. For more information on today's guest, visit our website, thisartisticpodcast.com.